This morning I'm continuing my sermon series, Joe, and my sermon series called Fantastic Beasts and Where to Find Them. If you're looking for fantastic beasts, one good place to find them is in the Bible. Scripture lesson this morning is from Genesis 3. You know, the Bible is a long and sprawling book. It took 1,100 years to write by about 50 different authors, 66 books. But the plot is very simple of the Bible. The ur plot of the Bible is very simple. It has three plot moves. God creates the world in unspeakable loveliness. The world gets lost. God restores the world to its original but lost loveliness. And the text I'm going to read this morning is uh, telling the story of that second crucial move, one of the linchpin texts in all of Scripture. Now, the serpent was craftier than any of the other animals that God had made. And the serpent said to the woman, Did God say you shall not eat of any of the trees in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of all the fruit of the trees in the garden, except for the tree in the center of the garden, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Because if we touch it, we will die. And the serpent said to the woman, You won't die. For God knows that when you eat of that fruit, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God. And so when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate and she also gave some to her husband. And then the eyes of both of them were opened and they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made loincloths for themselves. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden at the time of the evening breeze, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God. But the Lord God called to the man and said, Where are you? And the man said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. And God said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree which I commanded you not to touch? The man said, the woman whom you gave me, gave me the fruit of this tree and I ate. (laughs) And then the Lord God said to the woman, what is it that you've done? And the woman said, the serpent tricked me and I ate. The Lord God said to the serpent, because you've done this, upon your belly you shall go and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. And to the woman God said, I will greatly increase your pangs in childbirth. And to the man God said, because you've listened to the voice of your wife, cursed is the ground because of you. By the sweat of your brow will you earn the bread of your life. And God drove the man and woman from the garden and at the east end of the Garden of Eden, God placed an angel with a flaming sword to guard the way to the tree of life. Pray with me. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. So, here's a one-question pop quiz for you. How many talking animals are there in the Bible? Most of you will be able to get this if you don't overthink it. For instance, this one, the serpent, says the biblical storyteller, in some of the most aboriginal primitive material in all of the Bible from about 1000 B.C., 3000 years ago, the serpent was craftier than all the other animals that God had made. Now, I don't know why the Bible thinks the serpent is the craftiest of God's sprawling zoo. I might have made a different choice myself. I might have chosen the fox 
or the chimpanzee, which actually can play practical jokes. But perhaps the scriptures think the serpent is the craftiest of God's animals because of the sheer genius of its evolutionary history. The snake has two lungs and two kidneys, just like many mammals and other reptiles, but they're not twinned side by side symmetrically as in most animals, but lined up on one side of the body like boxcars to make room for its slender physique and for an alimentary canal that is in the larger pythons big enough to accommodate an antelope. Its jaws are hinged with unearthly flexibility so that it can accommodate prey many times the size of the diameter of its mouth. The snake, of course, smells with its tongue, which is famously forked so that the snake knows which direction its next meal or lover is coming from. The fangs are hollow like a hypodermic needle and for the same purpose, to inject potent chemicals beneath the epidermis. Small pits between the nostrils and the eyes are so heat sensitive that a snake can detect a temperature differential raised by a rat nearby. It never needs Botox or a facelift because it sheds its skin periodically, giving even elderly snakes the flawless complexion of Kerry Washington. It's a shrewd evolutionary technology which has improbably turned the snake into a symbol of immortality and resurrection. The black mamba, 14 feet long, spread out on the ground, or 4 feet high when it raises itself in its haunches to strike, can slither around at 12 miles an hour and keep your track shoes on because it has enough venom to kill 20 grown men. In the absence of antivenom, the black mamba's bite is 100% mortality rate. My father was born and raised in Africa. My paternal grandmother, his mother, was a Baptist missionary in Nyasaland, then Malawi now. And so Barbara Kingsolver's novel, The Poisonwood Bible, is among my top ten of all time. And if, you read, if you've read The Poisonwood Bible, you know that the plot hinges on the bite of a serpent, a green mamba, species of the cobra family. In this serpent, the snake experts tell us the diabolic genius of nature has attained its highest perfection the diabolic genius of nature. And so maybe that's why the Bible tells us that the snake is the craftiest of God's animals. Diabolos, diabolic for the devil. And that is why even Indiana Jones is scared of snakes. The serpent is so crafty he can talk. The Bible has a problem, you see. The Bible has a problem about how to explain all the violence and evil in God's world. Now, a good and kind creator and a competent creator would presumably create a world with only goodness in it. But that's not what we find in real life, is it? And so the Bible has this problem. The Bible can't lay all the violence and evil in the world at God's sacred feet. So it finds a culprit. And the culprit is the serpent, crafty, and the witless human being. The serpent's malice is left unexplained. We don't know why he wants to wreck the lives of creation's king and queen. He just does. The serpent is the Bible's Iago, 
the quintessential Shakespearean villain who engineers Othello's tragic downfall. Iago's malice is motiveless, as Coleridge famously put it. Motiveless malice. So crafty himself, perhaps the serpent is envious of a being which might prove to be craftier still. When Adam and Eve came along, you see, the serpent had been around for 150 million years until that evil asteroid reptiles ruled the earth and, the, and these mammals come along and this apex mammal with opposable thumbs wearing shark skin boots. Maybe that's why the serpent wants to wreck the first man and the first woman. And so he happens upon Eve in all her wide-eyed, dewy innocence, minding her own business, loving God her maker and becoming one flesh all day with Adam her husband and tending God's perfect garden. She has no experience of malice or evil. She's never seen this before. This is God's perfect world. And so she's completely blindsided by her crafty interrogator. Her artlessness is no match for his guile. And the serpent poses a crafty question. Did God say you couldn't eat of any of the trees in the garden? And so Eve is put in the uncomfortable position of defending God's honor. She says, no, no, no. We can eat of all of the trees of the garden except for the one in the middle, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. If we touch that, we'll die. And then the serpent says to Eve, you won't die. That's a lie. That's fake news. God doesn't want you to touch that tree because God knows that if you eat of that fruit, you'll become like God. You'll know the difference between good and evil. God, says the serpent, wants no peers, no competition, no rivals. God is like the valedictorian who wants to keep the salutatorian always in second place. The serpent imputes his own envy to the creator of all the stars and worlds. And Walter Brueggemann says that the serpent in the Garden of Eden is the first theologian because he wants to talk about God rather than talking to God or with God. He wants to question God rather than obey God. And there are some who've said that ever since theologians have been sliding around on their bellies. <laughs> theologians love talking about God but not talking to God or obeying God. Forget about it. That's way too hard. And so the serpent plants just, just the shadow of a doubt in the woman's mind, and it's enough, and she takes of the fruit and gives it to her husband. And then instantly, for the first time in this perfect world, they recognize that they are naked. And this is an ancient story, so God likes to take walks in the garden in the cool of the evening. And when the first man and the first woman hear God rustling through the grass, they hide themselves because they're ashamed. And God says, Adam, where are you? What have you done? Why did you do it? A man once asked his pastor, the great Carlisle Marnie, he said, Dr. Marnie, where's the Garden of Eden? And Dr. Marnie said, 215 Elm Street, Knoxville, Tennessee. And the man said, Dr. Marnie, I thought the Garden of Eden was somewhere in the Middle East. And Dr. Marnie said, you couldn't prove it by me because a long time ago when I was a boy, I took a quarter out of my mother's purse and went to the drugstore and bought some candy and ate it. And when I got home, I was so ashamed that I hid in the closet, which is where my mother found me. And she said, where are you? What have you done? Why have you done it? 
The story is not a story that happened to someone, sometime, in some place, but it's a story that happens to all people in all times, in all places. Because we've all known the difference between good and evil and opted for evil anyway, and then we were ashamed and hid from God, yes? The story is about failing to respect our limits. It's about grasping after that which doesn't rightfully belong to us. It's about the finite creature grasping after an infinity it has no right to and wouldn't know what to do with even if it had it. And so we've plundered the forbidden tree by probing the infinitesimal intricacies of the atom and turned those appalling energies into mostly violent purpose until the planet bristles with danger, right? Have you been watching this uh, National Geographic television series called Genius, a filmed version of Walter Isaacson's peerless biography of Albert Einstein? The show is a little bit light on its physics, but it shows us how the minute the genius with the eccentric coiffure came up with his theories of general and special relativity, he let the genie, the genius, let the genie out of the bottle. We were on our way to the atomic program at Los Alamos. Now, to his credit, Dr. Einstein always put a lot of distance between himself and that program but the genie was out of the bottle. And that's why this ancient aboriginal story is as relevant to our lives today as contemporary headlines about North Korea and Iran. There's an ancient legend that when Adam and Eve were banished from the garden and sent into the wilderness east of Eden, one animal went with him. All the other animals stayed in paradise, but one animal went with Adam and Eve into the wilderness, and that animal was the dog, of course. And that is why the dog has been humanity's best friend ever since. So there's a newer legend. Sometimes human beings return the favor for the dog. There's a newer legend. This was actually written in 1962 um, by Earl Hamner. Remember Earl Hamner, the guy who came up with the Waltons? So this story is set in the Blue Ridge Mountains of Virginia. It's about a man named Hyder and his dog Rip, and they're traveling down the road in the mountains. And uh, Rip and Hyder come upon other passers-by, and it's clear after a while that these passers-by can't see or hear. Hyder and Rip, and so it occurs to Hyder that he's dead, and he's walking down a road in the afterlife. And Hyder and Rip walk down the road for a while and come upon this beautiful pasture land enclosed with this beautiful white marble wall, and in the middle of the wall there's this beautiful arch, and in the arch a gate made of mother of pearl. And Hyder and Rip go up to the gate, and there's a guy sitting there at a desk, and the guy says, may I help you, sir? And Hyder says, well, what, what, what is the name? Where am I? What is the name of this place? And the guy sitting at the desk says, this is heaven, sir. Wow, that's cool. Do you happen to have any water? Yes, sir, says the man at the desk. I'll have some ice water brought right up. And Hyder says, okay, can my dog come in? And the guy says, no, there are no pets allowed in heaven, sir. And Hyder thinks about that for a minute and says, okay, no thank you. 
and he goes down the path a little further, and then he comes upon this sort of nondescript pasture land with a fence around it, a wooden old post fence around it, and a gate that looks like it's never been closed. And Hyder and Rip go up to the gate, and they see a man reading a book leaning against a tree. And they say, excuse me, sir, um, may I come in? And the guy says, yes, you may come in. And Hyder says, may I have some water? Yes, there's a pump right over there. And Hyder says, may my dog Rip come in with me? And the man says, of course, there's a bowl right by the pump. And so Hyder and Rip fill themselves with this cold water from the old pump. And they go back to the man who's reading the book against the tree. And they say, sir, can you tell me what this place is? And the man said, sir, this is heaven. And Hyder says, oh, that's confusing. That place down the way said that that was heaven too. And um, the guy sitting at the desk says, no, that's not true. They're lying to you. And Hyder says, that's pretty confusing. Does that make you mad that they use your name like that? And the man at the desk said, no, I can see where you might say that, but we appreciate it that they weed out all the people who would let their best friends behind. <laughs> There's another legend about the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. They say Christ's cross was carved from its wood so that by God's grace, the tree that got us banished from paradise becomes the gateway by which we return home. That great Episcopalian John Donne says, we think that paradise and Calvary, Christ's cross and Adam's tree stood in one place. Look, Lord, and find both Adams met in me as the first Adam's sweat surrounds my face. May the last Adam's blood my soul embrace. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Ghost, amen.